welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of People, Places, Planet Pod. My name is Dominic Chicatano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. Today's episode is another installment of a new oral history project and podcast series entitled The General Counsel's Opinions, Conversations with the Attorneys Who Have Led EPA's Office of General Counsel. As the Environmental Protection Agency prepares to celebrate its 50th anniversary in December 2020, this series will document the history of the OGC through conversations with the 12 general counsels who have led the office. ELI would like to thank Alston and Bird for supporting the General Counsel's Opinion series. Today, I'm here with Kevin Minoy, a current Alston and Bird partner who was an attorney in EPA's OGC for 18 years before joining his firm. From January 2017 to January 2018, Kevin had the opportunity to lead the OGC as EPA's acting general counsel. During that time, Kevin says he would often look at the list of general counsels on the EPA's website and wonder what the time leading the office was like for each of them. The General Counsel's Opinions podcast series is a chance for Kevin and all of our listeners to hear firsthand accounts of these experiences. Kevin will be joining us throughout the series, each time for a conversation with the former EPA General Counsel. On today's episode, Kevin speaks with Anne Klee, who served as General Counsel from June 2004 to July 2006. Anne is the former Vice President of Environment, Health, and Safety at General Electric Company in Boston, Massachusetts where she led the company's global environmental health and safety programs and was responsible for ensuring that GE's global operations complied with applicable EHS laws and regulations, managed the company's environmental litigation, supported eco-imagination, and advised GE business leaders on environmental and energy policy issues. She has over 30 years of experience in the area of environmental and energy law and policy, having served in private practice for over 10 years in various federal government roles and most recently at GE. Thank you, Kevin and Anne, for joining us today. Thanks, Dominic. I'd like to thank Anne for coming in today and congratulate you on, on your retirement from GE. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Dominic. It's great to be here. Great. So we're going to get started uh, right from the beginning and ask what led you to becoming general counsel? What path did your career take that got you in a position to be eligible and, and selected for that job? Never discount luck. Uh, being in the in the the lucky place at the right time, it was certainly not anything that I ever thought I would would get to be. Uh, I'd been a counselor uh, for the Secretary of Interior at the Department of Interior prior to coming to EPA, and in that role had the chance to work uh, with a lot of folks in the White House uh, and Jim Connaughton at at CEQ particularly, and I think he. Uh, championed me for for the role and and certainly became an advocate and encouraged me in the role. And that's what brought me to EPA. But I I think what also maybe made me attractive to to people like Jim and others was the experience that I brought. I'd been both in private practice, I had worked on the Hill. So I, I had the perspective of working with companies and seeing how public policy is developed and and working with regulatory agencies in the process too. And once you arrived, what was it like for you? Being general counsel of EPA has to be one of the best, if not the best, job for an environmental lawyer. Uh, It's tremendously fun 
and challenging, and you get to work on uh, an incredibly broad range of issues that, that really matter to people uh, and have an impact on a lot of those big issues. Um, being able to influence environmental policy and regulations, get involved in litigation at, at all levels up to the Supreme Court, working on cutting edge litigation, uh, cutting edge environmental issues, and really getting to help solve problems, but at a, at a macro scale. So I, I would say it, it was a tremendous opportunity. It was a ton of fun. You are literally in the room where it's all happening, if you think about it in an environmental context. And you're surrounded by great people, um, subject matter experts, both in the government and outside the government. Uh, so, you know, from a from from my perspective, it was really a dream job of a lifetime. Do you have a best day when you look back? Something that really stands out as as meaningful, or that that you thought was the you know the highlight of your tenure? You know, I don't. I don't know that I do. When I when I look back, there were so many great days, fun days, where I felt like I was making a difference, where I was able to be really creative and and bring my own thinking to bear. Uh, a big part of what I loved about the role was getting to work hand in hand with the administrator. So I came in to work for Administrator Mike Levitt. Uh, when Mike went over to HHS, Steve Johnson um, was nominated and became the, the administrator of EPA. And just having the chance to, to be a, an advisor and, and help them think about problems, you know, every day was a ton of fun. Um, you know, I, so I don't have a, a single day or a single win that was, that I would say was made, sticks out particularly. Um, but almost every day I would be lying though, if I didn't admit that there were probably also some days where I was ready to tear my hair out. Uh, we'll get back to those in just a minute. I thought Uh, you might, but I, I, I do want to follow up on the the fact that you are one of the few general counsels who, uh, existed or or served throughout a a transition in the administrator role. Uh, many times you see an administrator come in, they select their general counsel or they bring someone with them. And then when they leave, their general counsel leaves. And and you're somewhat unique in that uh, you were there uh, to work with Mike Levitt. And then when he left fairly quickly after he arrived, um, you stayed through uh, until Steve Johnson was on board. What was that like trying to lead the agency you know, through that transition period? And what special obligations or responsibilities did you think it, it put on you at the time? So it was an it was definitely an interesting period of time. Um, you know, Steve obviously had been the associate administrator for the then toxic and pesticides office. So I knew Steve had worked with him, um, and we had a, I think a good working relationship. And in fact, until he appointed his own chief of staff, I served as you know in an acting capacity as his chief of staff as well, just to keep help him keep things uh, sort of organized and and running on time. You know, it. They had both Steve and John, uh, Steve and Mike had um, different, you know, different styles. How they thought, how they approached, how they used staff meetings. But I, I've always viewed my role and and the role of a lawyer or a chief of a staff or or an advisor to really figure out what the principal needs and wants, and to make sure that he or she has it before they need it. And um, you, you adapt your style to that. Um, Steve, I thought, you know, was a very easy person to work work with and work for. 
um, liked uh, sort of banding ideas around, kind of open brainstorming, and Levitt did as well. Um, and so it just it was an, it was a pretty easy transition, I'd say. Um, and certainly the the agenda of the agency kept going on a very similar track between the one to the other. So it wasn't like there was this this really abrupt break between the two. You mentioned that some days uh, you felt like your hair was on fire. What would you say was your biggest challenge? And uh, if there wasn't a maybe a best day that stands out, is there a worst day that stands out to you? Well, those are two, mm-hmm. two, two very different questions. So definitely hair on fire. And, and that, that would be uh, one of the big challenges of stepping into any of these kinds of roles. You walk in and on day one, you are drinking from a fire hose. And, and you and I were just talking about this, you know, sort of the natural life cycle of a job. The first couple of years, you're really on the learning curve. And then you kind of get your, your um, sea legs, if you will, and you're adding value. And then, you know, in my case, over time, I, I have a short attention span and I need to go do something completely different. Because of the nature of a lot of these political jobs, um, you come in on day one there's a ton of stuff in the pipeline. There's a million issues coming at you. There are issues you don't expect. And for us, the big issue, the big unexpected issue was dealing with Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath of that. So you have all of this coming at you. You don't have necessarily the luxury of that natural cycle. You've got to get up to speed really fast, figure out what the priorities are, manage them. You're also, you know, advising the program offices and the administrator. You're working on an interagency basis. There are always um, interesting disputes, disagreements, different perspectives between different agencies, and you're always working those. So there's just a lot coming at you. I would say that's one of the, the big challenges that anyone faces coming into the role initially. And by the time you get your sea legs and you really know, you got the r- rhythm and you, you know everybody and um, the, the job becomes um, sort of familiar, you're, you're probably going to go do something else. At least that's, that's always been my experience in, in my federal government roles. So I, I'd say that was um, definitely a big challenge. But to me, it's also what makes the job really fun and interesting. So if you like that kind of intense pace, hair on fire every day, you don't know what your day is going to look like when you come into work in the morning, it's a great job. (laughs) Um, But definitely, you know, some of the issues we faced were tough issues. If you think about EPA and the scope of its authority and impact, it impacts virtually every aspect of people's lives in the United States and some internationally. Everything from the cars we drive, to use President Trump's recent examples, um, you know, our sinks, our toilets, our showers, um, whether or not you can use your fire pit, to all of manufacturing, power generation. I mean, it's really everything. So you think about economic growth in the country, environmental protection, they go hand in hand. Um, And that, that... from a you know environmental lawyer's perspective, to me is part of what makes the job interesting, part of what makes being an environmental lawyer interesting, but it's also really tough. Striking the right balance between protecting people's lives, protecting the environment, and helping drive economic growth and prosperity for society. And it's a really interesting, challenging, tough set of issues that 
the EPA team handles every single day. And I think that makes it a little bit unique among the federal agencies. So I would say that's another big challenge. Thinking about that challenge for a moment, um, balancing the different demands and, and the different interests that, that affect a decision that you make. Uh, you know, you served in a Republican administration, and there's often a, a narrative about what that type of administration values versus what a Democratic administration values. How do you, how did you ensure that the, all of those different interests were being represented and taken into consideration and, um, when you had those tough decisions? Was it, you know, explain maybe for folks who have a, a negative opinion or a, or a stereotype about uh, what a Republican administration might look like, sort of why it's not the case that sort of those issues, the environmental or health consequences were not, you know, simply ignored. I've always been frustrated by the polarization that surrounds environmental issues. And from my time working up on the Hill for first Senator Dirk Kempthorne and then Senator John Chafee, have always felt strongly and believed that you know environmental issues are not Democratic issues, they're not Republican issues. Republicans care about the environment. And I get really frustrated when critics just assume that Republicans don't care about the environment and don't care about protecting people or their their lives and their safety. And that all Republicans care about is, you know, letting polluters get off with with some advantage. It, it's it's a narrative that's out there, absolutely. And clearly environmental issues have gotten so polarized at the at, to the point now where I think it's dysfunctional. We can't get the things done that need to be done either up on the Hill or in large part to the agencies. And, and the clearest reflection of that is that the big issues of today are largely the big issues that we were grappling with 14 years ago. So I, I, it, that narrative is out there and it's always driven me crazy. Um, and, and it didn't used to be that bad. Um, so, I, so how I deal with it and, and have always dealt with it is by bringing independent thought to the table. And I think that's the role of a general counsel or an administrator or an assistant administrator, really anybody who's involved in these issues, is to bring independent judgment and thought, to ask the really tough questions of all stakeholders, um, to listen, to be open-minded, and then strike the best balance that you can bringing that judgment to bear. Um, you know, I am. I I have worked for Republicans both on the Hill and obviously in in the Bush administration, and and am very proud of what we tried to do. And my experience has always been that we, while we might have disagreed with you know other stakeholders or some of our critics on the approach to things, um, we shared a lot of the same common objectives. But that doesn't raise money, and that's not what makes headlines. But we've demonstrated over and over again, I think, again, sort of looking back to my work on the Hill, but also in the work in, in the things that we did in the Bush administration, that, that we could do both. Um, walk and chew gum at the same time, do good things for the environment, um, help drive economic growth, um, you know, do a, be be smarter and more creative about environmental protection. But it does mean that you got to listen. Sometimes you got to be willing to take um, tough stands and defend them, and then you got to be prepared to defend it in court. 
and and you know we're we are, we have to operate within the the boundaries of the laws we have whether those laws actually are well suited to whatever the problem is of the day uh, or not do you see a possibility of a future where it's less politicized than it is today in the foreseeable future no unfortunately I hope so. I, I think it has to, it, we have to get there. Because if I look at what I think of as, as some of the big environmental challenges that, that we are going to be addressing as a nation and, and as a world um, over the next 5, 10, 20 years, it's going to require us to be able to work together and drive common sense, consensus solutions, um, be pragmatic, um, appreciate the impacts of the decisions. And we need to change some of the laws in the United States so that they're actually, that they're tailored to to meet um, the challenges of the 21st century, to try to deal with nanotechnology in our current regulatory regime, for example, doesn't make any sense. But we got to be able to bring the parties together to figure out what the right pathway is forward. Or climate change is another great example. Um, climate change is going to be the existential challenge for regulators and legislators to deal with um, over the next decades. And you need you need NGOs at the table, you need businesses at the table, you need community groups at the table to find a path forward. And if we can't talk to each other and if we can't listen, then we're not going to be able to come up with fixes. I'd like to go back to sort of your first days at the at the agency coming from Department of Interior. Uh, you talked about drinking from a fire hose. You were, uh, uh, without any disrespect to the other uh, general counsels I worked for, by far the most prepared uh, person that we ever briefed uh, from day one. And uh, for some people, that was a little scary. <laughs> um, what was your approach, you know, walking into an agency knowing the that the breadth of what's going on, uh, what was your approach just to try to get your a handle on everything that you were going to be expected to know? And, and uh, what was your, what role did the, the staff play in that from day one and then maybe to the end? I think I walked into EPA with a very clear sense of how much I didn't know. And, and I had learned from my experience at Interior that not only was I surrounded by experts in a particular statute. I was surrounded by people who were experts in a particular section or subsection of a statute. So I knew that I had this tremendous asset walking into OGC, that people there had decades and across the the group, you know, all of the lawyers, hundreds and hundreds of years of experience that I needed to learn from. And so getting the briefings, again, this goes back to the, you got to listen, you got to ask questions. Um, I'd like to think that what I did also was challenge assumptions um, and push back some, uh, partly because I like the, I've always liked the the back and forth and the debate. Um, But I also wanted to understand where something was uh, an opinion, an interpretation, or where there was where where there where there was something more than that. Um, but I think you know anybody coming into the job who doesn't take advantage of of the tremendous brains that you get in OGC, and and then use those briefings to to help 
build a broader foundation for yourself. It's a, it's a lost opportunity. But throughout my tenure there, I knew I was never going to be um, an expert in, in any way, shape, or form the way the, way the lawyers at OGC were. They, they were critical partners in everything we did. It's interesting to hear you talk about sort of that you enjoy the challenging assumptions and the like, because that was a, certainly the experience that, that people had. It uh, was or was not. It was. It okay. was. Um, and it was different in, in some ways from what people had gotten used to. Uh, oftentimes you brief a, a senior person and they just say yes and thank you. And, and it took us a while, I think, to sort of understand why in part you, you know, you were taking that approach and, and, in many ways, it was because that way you could defend the position if that's what the position was going to be moving forward and moving over to the DOJ or wherever you had to take it. And so it's interesting just to think about the managing up and in, in your comments earlier about the difference between uh, Mike Levitt and Steve Johnson and having to adjust your approach for the, the leadership that you're serving. Uh, that was something that I think we all learned over the course of your tenure uh, and are, you know, my sense always was I was a better lawyer for the more challenging questions than for the simple acceptance of what the answer was. And, you know, I think I'm glad to hear that because I, you know, every once in a while I've also heard the, um, I, I'll try to clean up my language here, that it could be extraordinarily challenging from the, from the other side to, to, to go through that experience if you don't um, if you don't particularly enjoy that that kind of a back and forth, and and some of our discussions were, I would say, kind of fun but heated, right? <laughs> um, where where there wasn't a unanimity of views, but but I would say it's it's also it was really important for me to be able to have those kinds of conversations with the OGC lawyers because then that enabled me to have a conversation with either Mike Levitt or Steve Johnson or program, um, you know, program assistant administrators to say, here are the pros and cons. Here's where our arguments are strong, where they're not, where we've got vulnerabilities, how we need to shore them up, or here's another approach that we might think of. If I hadn't been able to have those um, really open, candid, um, spirited debates with the OGC team, I couldn't play that role for the key policymakers in the agency. It made us better, and I think it made our, our work product better. I Yeah, I agree. Um, I was thinking back to <laughs> the one experience I had where it was sort of a, the tough to go through those, those, those uh, exchanges. I will admit that I, I still remember uh, one day you told me I gave you the worst answer you'd ever heard in your entire legal career. Um, <laughs> Sadly, but, that does sound like me. But, um, you know, it, it took me a minute to figure out that that was not the end of my own legal career. Um, but, you know, we were better off because of it, or I was better off because of it, because I under it. it you were reacting to me saying something that basically discounted the, the impact something had on, on a regulated entity um, and just really discounting it 100%. Um, and I said, this is, well, I might as well say what it is. We were talking yeah, about, dying of we were talking about the toxic release inventory and whether or not a company uh, had to file a, a toxic release inventory report for something that they felt that was not actually a release. And I made the statement, well, 
under the case law, if they file their form, then there's no standing and, and the case goes away, uh, which I thought was a fine solution. Of course, uh, that's when you told me that that was not quite as fine as I thought it was, in part because it required somebody to do file a form that the law didn't require. And uh, I learned from that in terms of understanding the different perspectives. It's not just, can you get out of jail free? It's, why are you in jail in the first place? Um, so moving forward, uh, you know, notwithstanding the that one briefing that I didn't do so well, it was a few years later, you promoted me uh, to my first management job and, and you promoted me to be the Assistant General Counsel for Clean Water Act Scope and Implementation, which uh, if folks are following the environmental world right now, the waters of the U.S. jurisdictional issues, uh, they, those are all, were all within my uh, portfolio. And yet, uh, when I interviewed, I hadn't worked on water law a single day. I hadn't actually taken water law in law school. And I was still just uh, five years, six years into my legal career. Uh, what, what, do you, what did you see when you looked at people who you were having the opportunity to make those decisions about promotions? What did you think about, how much did you think about the future of the organization and, and what, um, what sort of, you know, what did you want to leave for a legacy of those decisions when, when your time was, was through at EPA? I, I think one of the most important things that any leader can do and should do is think about not only her or his succession, um, but really also the strength of the talent in the organization. So talent development, building up that next generation of leaders is probably the most important thing you do. And, and you know, the fact that issues like Waters of the United States, which was a big issue when, when I was there, is still a really big issue and hasn't been resolved, is, is a perfect example of why if you want to have a lasting impact, and I think a positive impact, Yes, absolutely, you can work on the big policy issues and hope that the answers stick or that the approaches stick, but where you can really make a huge difference is, is in building the organization for the future. And so for me, um, thinking about that next generation of leadership was critical and, and, a, and a priority for me, and it has been in every role that I've had ever since then. And and so when I looked at the the... Um, you know, when there was turnover or openings in, in jobs, I was always looking for people, not necessarily who had taken um, the class in law school, but who were smart, curious, um, learn, you know, open to learning, um, and um, were willing to take those stretch roles. I mean, to me, it was a, a huge sign of your strength that you were willing to put yourself out there for a role in an area that wasn't your sort of historical area of expertise. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I would much rather, and I have somebody who's smart, um, asks the right questions, brings good judgment, and is going to work well with a team. Um, in, in the OGC family and dynamic, I think those were the really important strengths. Um, the expertise you would develop. I get that offered that job on the day Rapanos was decided by the Supreme Court. So it was uh, for the waters of the U.S. purposes quite the first day, uh, but it was a great, great job for sure. One of the things that uh, stands out about your tenure is you are just one of just three uh, women to ever hold the general counsel position. Is there something that that you think 
the agency or the legal profession could be doing to better position women for those types of senior roles. And I know that sort of you've been passionate about getting women to be on corporate boards and, and the like. And what is it that you would suggest that, that uh, the legal field could do to make a difference in better positioning or, or giving more opportunities so that women have an equal shot at some of these positions? I think it goes back to, to the idea of talent development um, and not waiting until you've got a general counsel opening, um, but rather early in people's careers, making sure that they they have the opportunity to take on you know, some of the big assignments, the, the hairy projects, um, the ones that are going to maybe get them a little bit more face time with senior decision makers. Um, not ju- and not, so that's one thing that I, I don't think that we as a profession historically did well enough. Uh, I think that's changing. I hope it's changing and I've been, and I've tried to do it. So when I think about what are those good entry, not entry level, but entry level challenges, you know, can I, can I get more diversity into the pipeline at that stage and then at every stage after that? So that when the bigger openings come up, then you've got a much broader diverse pool of candidates to choose from. I think we need to do a better job, not just mentoring, um, you know, women, young women, lawyers, um, and, uh, lawyers of color, but championing them so that when, you know, when, when senior leaders are in a room talking about, Hey, we need to get somebody to work on a team, um, that we really challenge, uh, the decision of who gets to work on a team or a project and, and really ask, well, why not this, you know, why not Mary? Why not somebody else over the, 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 the easy standard pick? So I think we need to do a lot more of that. Um, and, and then think about, you know, sort of the breadth of opportunities, not just professionally, but, you know, serving on boards, whether they're corporate boards or um, nonprofits, great opportunity to get out there, build a network, be visible, develop skills um, that will translate and help them in their professional career. So I, so I, I think there are multiple pieces. Um, you know, I, I was very fortunate in the Bush administration. Obviously, I worked for Gil Norton as Secretary of Interior. Um, I, the solicitor, um, when I came over to EPA, was Sue Ellen Wooldridge. So I, you know, I had role models and uh, colleagues who were accomplished professional women who were just amazing. I mean, Sue Ellen went on to become uh, the assistant attorney general for ENRD. So, you, you know, the role models are there. We just need to do more and be more than just role models. One of the things we've been uh, recently doing at, at Austin and Bird is, is referring to, instead of mentors, career advocates. Yeah, exactly. And so that you put some more oomph into it and expectation into what they're there for. Yeah. Not to be your buddy, but to actually help you advance. Right. And, and, and not just to coach you. I mean, so coaching is great. Right. Mentoring is great. I mean, they're, they're, but it's more than that. It's when, you know, one of your, your partner's uh, colleagues has a, has a great assignment, becoming the champion or advocate for a young woman lawyer right. or a mid-career lawyer. So, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's, it's a really important shift in thinking. Uh, as we get towards the end of our time here, 
one of the things that we like to do is ask uh, the folks who we're talking to whether they might have advice for whomever is going to be the 13th general counsel uh, confirmed to be the head of OGC at some point. It's almost a presumptuous sort of question, right? <laughs> I, so I'd, I'd, and part of it is colored for me based on what I wish I had done more of or done differently. But I would say uh, it's a really big job with a ton coming at you. One of the most important things, in addition to really taking advantage of the, the career staff who are there, um, is, is surround yourself with the smartest people, the best people that you can, people who are smarter than you, and then get out of their way. And I was able to do that with people like Chet Thompson and Roger Martella. And I was really lucky to have them as colleagues and, and others as well, you know, Ken von Schomburg. Um, they make the job doable because there's just so much coming at you. So I think that's really important. I'd say set clear priorities for yourself. Know what, what are the two or three things that you want to accomplish during your tenure and then focus relentlessly on execution and track it, have milestones and deliverables. And I didn't do that. Um, and I think, you know, I look at others in the agency who were better at that, who were very clear about what they wanted to do and they went and did it. Um, I think that's really important. And then lastly, I'd say the relationships that you can build within the agency, but almost equally importantly, outside the agency with your counterparts in the other federal governmental agencies, with the White House, with OMB, um, are going to be really critical to helping you solve some of the big challenges that EPA faces. So having a strong network of colleagues who you can bounce ideas off of, who you can work with when, when the agencies inevitably um, clash, um, make the job more fun and, and make the job more doable. The ability to call someone who knows you and who you know uh, to, to help solve that crisis, is, it's in invaluable. It makes sure. all the difference. Yes. And they become friends for life. Yes. Um, speaking of life, uh, my last question is, what does the future hold for you? Well, uh, I finished, having just finished up 12 years or almost 12 years at GE, uh, I'm looking, I'm in a hiatus between jobs at the moment, uh, but I'm looking forward to actually doing something completely different. I've been an environmental lawyer for, um, over 30 years, almost 35 years, pretty close to that. It's been a great run and I've learned a lot, but I, one of the things I loved about GE was, was taking on some more operational challenges and running things. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to more of a, an operational kind of role, probably in a, in a smaller company. Well, we'll be uh, waiting to hear what that, that future is uh, or where you end up. And, uh, but between now and then, certainly enjoy some time off. It's uh, well-deserved. Thank you so much for coming in today. We appreciated it. Thanks, and, Kevin. It was and, great talking to you. Yes, it's been good. Good to, to catch up after exactly. I was all these say, years. I was going to say the same thing. It's been great to catch up. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.